This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Fun show for you guys today. A little bit later, Bruce Feldman is going to be joining us to talk about his new book, Flipping the Script, about Ed Ogeron and the 2019 LSU Tigers. A lot of fun stuff that we got to with Bruce. Before that, though, joining me now, it's Lindsay Jones from The Athletic. Lindsay, how are you? I'm great, Robert. How are you doing? I am doing great. I tweeted this earlier today. Trade deadline is upon us, and there is nothing else we can do to start the show today except for fake trades. Because fake trades are one of my favorite things on planet Earth. For the most part, fake trades have been a futile exercise when it comes to the NFL. The NFL is not a trade-heavy league overall. Last year, that was a little bit different. And I think that it's for a lot of reasons. A lot of the smarter teams in the league, I think over the last three to four seasons, had done a really good job of using the veteran trade market as a market inefficiency. Trading picks for guys for that certainty, I think the Eagles were doing it a lot. The Rams did it. The Patriots were doing it. Teams that were winning consistently. The other reason was the cap was just exploding. It was going up so fast that folding in veteran contracts into your overall budget wasn't that difficult. So teams are willing to say, ah, we'll take it and we'll figure it out later. This year, the landscape is a lot different. One, yeah. you have the COVID concerns. It's going to be six days before any of these guys can even get on the practice field for some of these teams. Two, who knows? what the salary cap is going to look like this next year. So you can't necessarily take on a $10 million cap hit in 2021 that has no dead money because you don't know if you want that to be part of your plan. So it's a little bit of a different environment this year than it was last season, but that's not going to stop us from throwing out some of these here. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, and I am uh, I'm working on a piece that's going to publish Thursday on The Athletic, so it should be up when this podcast is up about looking back at last year, because last year was really fun. I mean, a lot of mm -hmm. these dream trades kind of came true. The the Jalen Ramsey trade to the, from the Jags to the Rams, you know, Marcus Peters going to the Ravens, Emmanuel Sanders going to the Niners, you know. Some of them didn't work out. Mohamed Sanu to the Patriots. Um, there were some uh, takes that didn't really hold up um, a year later. But, you know, you're, you're absolutely right about this year. Last year, there were 13 trades in October. That's a lot. That's a lot yeah. of trades. How many have there been October. this year? Only a handful, there's, right? There's been a handful, McClendon, yeah. Carlos Dunlap, which we'll get to. But not many. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been kind of some minor trades, like uh, you know the the Jags traded for a Titans backup linebacker. I mean, there's been some little little. I somehow here missed that one. If you can imagine. Yeah. So we're not gonna get too excited about some of the 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 lower of the roster trades. Um, you know, the Carlos Dunlap trade, which we will get into a little bit today. That was you know kind of a big one that we knew was coming, and it's notable because the Bengals don't trade players and they especially don't trade players in the middle of the season. Uh, but let's, let's go, let's, let's do our dream trades because I think there's a lot of scenarios that, you know, teams could make themselves better. And then there's bad teams that really need to just at this point, start planning for the future and trying to get as much capital, uh, whether it's for their current staff or new GMs that might be coming in. So Robert, are you going to, let's go first, give us your best dream trade. Oh, well, see mine's mine are a combination of big time dream trades and trades that actually would have practical value. So, and that aren't that exciting. Yeah. So let's start with a somewhat less exciting one. I had Jared Davis, the Lions linebacker going to Pittsburgh for, because they have a huge hole there now with Devin Bush tearing his ACL. The guys they have there, whether it's Robert Spillane or Vince Williams are not very strong in coverage. And this is a team that 
really has no problems going to one linebacker sets and passing situations. And Bush's overall movement skills, his ability to kind of play in space, is one of the reasons they could do that. Now, that's going to be a much bigger question when you're dealing with a team that has Vince Williams and Roberts Blaine, a linebacker. You saw A.J. Brown's really long touchdown he had last week. Davis has been kind of a forgotten man to Detroit. He played 20 snaps to the Lions last week. He's a former first-round pick. Fell out of favor with that coaching staff in Detroit with Matt Patricia. I'd like to see what he looks like in a different situation than that Lions defense because I have a lot more faith in Keith Butler and that Steelers staff getting something out of him than I do in whatever Matt Patricia was trying to do with him in Detroit. And I I remember kind of the the book on him when he was coming out of college was that he was, you know, kind of one of those hybrid-y kind of linebackers could cover guys and, um, you know, is, is fast for an inside linebacker. So I, I like it. I, I I don't hate that move. Although it's interesting now that the Lions are actually have been buyers in some cases. You know, obviously they traded for Everson Griffin. That's one of the trades that we hadn't mentioned yet. They're they're adding some pieces there. You know, I guess we all kind of thought maybe at this point they would be sellers. But if there is a guy who, like you said, is already kind of out of favor and there's a move that might make sense, it'll free up some cap room. So I, I don't I don't hate that trade. Yeah, it's in the last year of his deal. That's typically what I do with this. Yeah. Even if a team isn't necessarily a buyer or a seller when it comes to their record or their standing, as you just said about the Lions, guys in the last year of their deals that aren't playing a major role on specific teams, I think he fits that bill. So I think the Steelers would be well served to go out and get somebody there because they just don't have much depth behind the guys they have playing. And Splane is an undrafted free agent. He played fine last week, but I still think they could shore that up as a team that's a Super Bowl contender. All yeah, right, absolutely. who's your first one? Um, all right. So speaking of guys in the last year, their deals um, in a team that has a need, I'm going to send Will Fuller from the Texans to the Cleveland Browns. And wow, okay. I had Will Fuller on my list as well. So we'll get well, there. All right. So, you know, the, the the Texans don't have very many tradable assets at this point. And that's a really depressing point to be at. I think if you are the Texans, knowing that you have no draft capital for next year, you're going to have a new GM. So at this point, you kind of gotta look at who you have, and you might be able to who you might be able to get anything for. And Will Fuller is about the only guy right now. And the Browns, they really need wide receiver help right now. And they've been willing to deal. They've been they've made a lot of deals with uh with the Texans in the past. I mean, it was just different GMs in place, but you know, I just think that the Browns need help there. He's not expensive. Will Fuller's in the last year of his deal. It'll be about $5 million to pay him for the rest of the year. And and if it works and you resign him, because I think the te- the the Browns now have a lot of long-term questions about, you know, what Odell Beckham is going to be for them long-term. Um, so that I like that move. I think it's a win-win for everybody. The Texans aren't going to get a, a high pick for Will Fuller. But at this point, they need all the draft picks that they can get. And even if you add a second-day pick, it's a fourth or a fifth rounder, you know, maybe a sixth. You know, at some point, you could maybe start packaging things that would help you move up if you need to next year, whoever that new general manager might be. So I'll be curious if they want to go get somebody like Will Fuller or they want to see what they have in the younger players on their roster. I mean, that's always the question is some teams end up hurting themselves by plugging in certain veterans into those spots rather than saying, all right, let's give this guy a few more snaps. Let's give that guy a few more snaps. Like Donovan Peoples-Jones, for example. That guy is absurdly talented, like otherworldly gifted on a physical level. Do you want him to be on the field a little bit more? Do you want to see what you can get out of him? It's a philosophical discussion. And I don't know where the Browns think they are in kind of the contention conversation, 
So I'd be curious what they're thinking about themselves right now and how that'll inform their decision making here over the next week or so. Yeah, I mean, I think they're absolutely in contention for a wild card spot. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I think you need to be figuring out what are the ways we could get better. I I love Higgins. I mean, I so you know he's from Colorado State, which is one of the college programs that I actually watch, and they don't have a lot of reasons to watch a lot of times, but he's been a really good player and was just really underused by previous coaching staff. So while I do, you know, I am you know posing this potential trade of sending Will Fuller there, I do really want to see what what Higgins can do when he has an actual bigger role in the offense. It's kind of amazing how many NFL receivers they've produced out of Colorado State. Guys yeah, that Michael came Gallup? in and Michael Gallup is from there and Preston Williams went there. And their receivers coach that developed all those guys actually was the Packers receivers coach last year. So clearly an NFL team was like, this guy's doing something right. And I believe he's Wisconsin's receivers coach now. So just a random receiver factory over there at Colorado State, which makes absolutely no sense. But there you go. So where were you going to send Will Fuller? I was going to send him to Baltimore because right. we, we talk, we've talked in the past about the Ravens needing another receiver. He fits that bill that they're looking for with fast guys. You know, He's a fast, fast player. But also, Will Fuller, speedster is what he's known for, but he can make some contested catches outside the numbers. And he's somebody that does do a decent job of shielding people off with his body. You know, he does more of that than I think people really realize. As someone who has a lot of Will Fuller stock in fantasy this year, I've watched a lot of Will Fuller snaps, and he was getting a lot of targets in Houston, but he's doing it in ways that you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to Will Fuller. So I think he can do some stuff for them. The Packers were another team that apparently was has made calls about Will Fuller, according to our own Aaron Reese, and I think he would be a really good fit for them. And we could talk about the pack. Do you have any receivers going to green Bay? Should we just transition to that? Uh, so I put golden Tate on my list to go to green Bay. If only because one, they, they need receivers. The giants are sellers. And I just like the idea of him getting to play the lions and maybe looking down and getting a playoff game against the Seahawks because I love, you know, golden Tate really Uh, digging back here. (laughs) I just, because I just think there's a lot of potential for like, look, yeah, or maybe they could maybe they could play the Rams again and we could get some more Jalen Ramsey versus Golden You really Tate, want to get you know? into all this now? All right, we can really unpack this if you want to. Um, but I also like Golden Tate as if a If you want to assert, if you want to do some Googling, Google Golden Tate, Jalen Ramsey, or Golden Tate, Russell Wilson, and just go nuts. Just have fun. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. a lot there. of so, stuff you know, on the internet. I, I like off-field storylines to, to go along with my on-field storylines. Off-field storylines. That's what we'll call those. Great. It's fantastic. I actually had Golden Tate as a possibility for the Ravens because I think that if you, we will talk about this when we get into the Ravens playing the Steelers this week, a lot of teams blitzing them on an empty this year, and they don't have a lot of win off the line of scrimmage, initial kind of separation guys. And Golden Tate isn't the best at that at this point in his career, but he's a better open field, run after catch receiver than most of the players on that Ravens roster right now. So I'll be curious if the Ravens do think they need another receiver, what kind of receiver are they going for? Do they want that straight line speed guy that aligns with the other players they have on their roster? Or do they feel like they need to diversify those skill sets a little bit and try to find somebody in that Golden Tate mold? With the Packers, I think I threw this out before the season at some point, or maybe even last year, in the spring, I think a guy like Curtis Samuel makes sense for them. So Curtis Samuel is in the last year of his deal. I think the Panthers like him 
and they use a ton of three receiver sets, so he plays a lot for them. But at a certain point, it becomes a matter of resources. Like DJ Moore is, uh, plays a big role for them. He's going to be on his rookie contract for a couple more years. But they already paid Robbie Anderson. Do you want to pay Curtis Samuel after you've already paid one guy and may have to pay DJ Moore? At a certain point, it's hard to invest in three guys on second contracts in one position group. And when you look at what the Packers are doing offensively this year, so much jet motion. And they need a guy to kind of serve that role. And when Tyler Irvin's been hurt, they don't have a guy that really fits there. So even with Alan Lazard coming back, I just think somebody to kind of play that jet, shiny object role in the Packers offense would make a lot of sense for them, whether it's Curtis Samuel or someone else. All right, Lindsay, what's your next one? All right, I'm going to stay with speedy wide receivers. And I'm going to send John Ross from the Bengals to the Patriots. And I'm not sure if the Patriots should be buyers here. That's okay. That's my question here because I've seen other people mention that as well. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing we have to answer. Do they so want to trade sh- four players? I think they could if it's not an expensive player. And I don't think John Ross would cost them a lot of money. But they are they just need somebody. They need somebody who can run on that team. And it's just it's so hard to watch the Patriots offense right now. And we're going to talk more about the Patriots later, uh, later in the show today. And, you know, I think the Bengals are going to be sellers. I think they could unload him. And I think the Patriots just need to find anybody, literally a warm body who can get any sort of separation uh, for that offense. So that's why I'm going to send him there. You know, I don't know if it's a, you know, if, the, the big question, right, is where are the Patriots at? And we're, we're like I said, we're going to get into that. But I just would love to see them add any functional human on their to their wide receiver core. And they've tried a lot, you know, over the last couple of years to add bodies there. Obviously, made they, they made the big, the big trade last year for Mohamed Sanu for a second round pick, which was way, way overpriced, which obviously didn't end up working out. I think you would be able to get him for get John Ross for a lot less than a second round pick. And he might actually be able to, you know, give you some functional snaps over the second half of the season. So if we're making the Patriots sellers, if we go the other way, did you have Stefan Gilmore going anywhere? I had him on my list, but I thought you were going to. So, so I didn't make him in one of my trades. So one team that jumps out to me that could use a guy like that is maybe Tennessee. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, Mike Vrabel has New England ties. Stefan Gilmore is, plays for that in that New England system. There are differences, but there are enough relationships there where it's like, all right, it would make sense that schematically he could do that. Malcolm Butler went to the Titans, for example, stuff like that. I'm just curious with how the money would go because his cap hit this year, I believe his remaining base, his base salary that's left is only 13 million. So theoretically, I think that opens more teams up than you would originally think just because his cap hit this year is 25.2, but there's a lot of bonuses in there, including a restructure. So I'll be curious to see if somebody goes and makes a play for him. I mean, he's the type of guy like Jalen Ramsey last year, for example, that could really alter your fortunes on the defensive side of the ball. I don't know if there's an obvious fit just because of what it would take to go get him, but he's definitely somebody to keep an eye on. So so sticking with that, with AFC cornerbacks, another one that I thought, and I didn't know exactly which guy would make sense there, but I think the Bills could use some cornerback help. And two obvious candidates for me would be Brian Poole from the Jets, but again, don't think they trade him within the division. And two would be Nikel Roby Coleman in Philadelphia because he's in the last year of his deal on a one-year deal there. But when Sean McDermott got to Buffalo, he cut him instantly. So clearly there's a stylistic thing where 
Roby Coleman is not his favorite type of player. So the Bills are a team I think could absolutely use a slot corner. I'm just not sure exactly who would fit there. What about Desmond King? That's another one that I, that I thought that that's the, the third one that was on my list. So somebody like that who's versatile, can do a few different things, has just fallen out of the rotation with the Chargers. That, that's a good one, actually. Yeah, he was on my my maybe list. So let's let's put him in there. Let's let's send Desmond King from L.A. to Buffalo just in time for winter. So did you have J.J. Watt going anywhere? Well, if we're just talking dream scenarios and off-field storylines and also teams that could really use a guy like that, I mean, should the Packers make that call? I mean, send J.J. Watt home to Wisconsin. I mean, they're, they're not that many fans in the stadiums, but could you just imagine like the fervor of Wisconsinites if J.J. Watt somehow could end up in Green Bay? We talked about this a little bit on the Sunday show. The entire state would just burn down. People would just be celebrating so hard. It would be like when the Dodgers won the World Series last night. That's the exact reaction we would see, except it'd be a lot colder, but it would not deter people. And hopefully better think, COVID protocols. Yeah, just a little bit, just a little bit. Do you think there's a reason we're trying to trade all of these players to the Packers? I had like six receivers going to the I Packers. Did too. We have why I, I don't know what it is. There's something there about why we want to put all these guys on the Packers. Maybe it's just an overcorrection for how little help Aaron Rodgers has gotten over the past decade. Maybe that's what it is. Well, I think that's part of it. And I think that we know that they're really close. And we've known that they were close heading into last season. And we kept going, well, why didn't they draft a wide receiver? Why didn't it's they amazing. add this, this extra defensive piece to help fix their their run defense? So we th- those holes are still there. And it's a desirable place. I think they can afford it. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of wild. But yeah, I think I had you know, like five or six different potential Packers trades. And I kept having to cross them off because I was like, I can't just send like the entire league to Green Bay. Do you know when you, you go to the grocery store and you forget something on your list and then Every time. you need you need it desperately. So you have to go to the corner store around the like just around the corner and pay twice as much for it. That's exactly what's happening with the Packers and their wide receiver situation right now. They totally forgot that they needed a receiver in the draft, and now they have to pay a premium for it because they couldn't do it originally. It's exactly how it feels. I'm in that space right now with my grocery run that was this morning. That's why it's fresh in my mind. And what they're probably going to do in reality is they're just going to say, like, screw it. I'm just going to cook without the cumin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, you know what? We'll just line A.J. Dillon up in some ways. It's totally fine. So... I had Watt going to the Raiders. I don't know why. It It just, they need pass rushing help, clearly. He's somebody that I, weirdly enough, their cap situation with all the deals they've handed out, you'd think it'd be in tatters next year. But they can get out from under the Tyrell Williams deal for nothing next season. Same with Marcus Mariota. Trent Brown is the same way, but I think they probably want to hang on to him. He's been playing well for them. So they could theoretically fit Watt's contract in under the cap next season. I assume he'd want an extension just for a little bit of security, but I don't know. I can almost see it. It's like him in that uniform for whatever reason yeah. like, makes sense to me. I mean, maybe it's a not lot of quite guys as good as good him in and like, the, I mean, it's maybe not quite as good as like him in the Packers, like yellow and green, but I like it. There's something about, you know, like the dark side or, you know, I, I like and it. he is really like he's playing up that villainous kind of side of himself right now. If you saw that post game press conference, oh, like he is a very angry person. All right, who else did you have? All right, so I have the Gi- I have a couple giants on our list. Um, I mean, I already ta- I already mentioned Golden Tate, but I think they need to they, they need to move Dalvin Tomlinson, 
And I'm going to put Dalvin Tomlinson to the Dolphins because the Dolphins are kind of right on that edge right now where I think they think they can compete. Um, They don't have a ton of money. I initially was like, could they trade for Geno Atkins? But I don't think they can afford Geno Atkins and what the money that's left on his contract. So Dalvin Tomlinson, defensive tackle from the Giants last year of his deal. And the Dolphins just really, really, really need help there. And it wouldn't necessarily be a long-term pay there. You know, like I said, last year of his deal. So um, I like Dalvin Tomlinson there. And then I'm sending Evan Ingram to the Cardinals because I really want to see the Cardinals just do something to give a little more oomph to that to that passing game a little bit more, you know, help kind of in, in that intermediate zone for Kyler Murray. So that's a really interesting one. We talked about the Cardinals yesterday a lot on the show with Ted and they're using a lot of 12 personnel and two tight end sets, which is kind of surprising when you think about what they were supposed to be under Kingsbury, but that's a lot of in line. There's a lot of blocking that goes with those roles. I mean, it's not a lot of split out tight end sets, so I'll be curious how they yeah. think he could well, fit there because he's not that strong of a blocker. But are they not doing more stuff where they're splitting out their tight ends because they just don't have the right guys to that, do that? Maybe that's it. And I think among, again, the conversation Ted and I had yesterday, Cliff has done a really good job of just being like, ooh, I like that. Let me use that. I like that. Let me use that. I think that he is the right creative mind to possibly get the most out of Evan Ingram where Jason Garrett is decidedly not. So I I like it. I absolutely could see that. I actually think that one would be pretty fun. I listed uh, a couple potential spots for Evan Ingram, but ultimately settled on Where else on did the you Cardinals. have him? Um, I also looked at Buffalo as a spot where their tight end group is not great and they've been like decimated by COVID recently. Um, they had one positive test and then everybody else had to go home because of close contacts. Um, so I don't think the guys that they have there, like Dalton Knox and some other guys are super dynamic. So uh, I, the other, yeah, that was Buffalo. I went between Buffalo and the Cardinals and ultimately uh, decided to send him to Arizona because I, I actually like that so one much. a lot. I like that one a lot. A couple more just kind of needs and guys that I think may be something to watch. I'll be curious to see what the Titans want to do with their offensive tackle spot with Terry Luan done for the season. I mean, this is a team that probably thinks it can win a championship, and reasonably so. Do they think Ty Sam Brylo is the guy that's going to be able to hold down that spot for them? That's a question. And the other guy that I think was playing really well before he got hurt this year and is the exact type of piece that can help a lot of different defenses is Malik Jackson. You know, if the Eagles do end up becoming sellers because they just think that this year is probably a lost cause, which I assume it is, they're getting pretty close to blow-up mode here, I would have to imagine. I think he's the type of guy that could help out a lot of different teams because he can play different roles. Ooh. You, you, I'm not sure. Do you know how I feel about Malik Jackson? I mean, I'm sure you're big, a big Malik Jackson fan. Big, big fan. Um, he's going to give you at least one personal foul a game. But if you're okay <laughs> with that, he can I, also be really good. As someone who was penalized a lot during my very underwhelming football career, I that aligns with my values. But there's the it's, thing it's is, there's, penalties. there's probably a lot of teams out there that need that guy who plays with that kind of an edge and just needs that kind of a presence. And I don't, the, the Titans have been like in that market for more D line help. And I, you know, I, I love Jeffrey Simmons on the inside and I, I know they've been looking for more like edge help. But maybe the Titans? This is a weird thing. I also think there's something to getting a guy who's been successful in a bunch of places. 
Like somebody who's used to having to go to a new team, figure out how to get to work, figure out how to be in meetings. It's a small thing, but this is a guy who's changed teams a couple different times and been good when after changing teams. So I just think that's a small thing that would lead me to believe that he could help a team if dealt in the middle of a season. Hey, maybe the Dolphins make that call. I don't know. You you really want to put like, people on the Dolphins here, man? I do want to put man. people on Are the Dolphins. Are you like ready for the Dolphins to make a run? Jesus. Stay stay tuned to later in the podcast. We'll we'll get there. <laughs> All right. So obviously, f- stuff to watch. We'll see how many deals actually get done. I hope it's a lot because I love me some trades. But let's get to the big game of the week. I mean, back in prime time, man. Steelers Ravens. Best game on the slate. Very familiar territory to people who've been watching the NFL for the last decade. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to talk about with this game, but the one area that really jumps out to me is the Ravens offense playing against the Steelers defense because the Steelers defense has been a pretty lights out for a majority of this season. I know they had some slip ups in the second half against Tennessee and they let them back into that game. But for the most part, you know, this is a team that has been pushing people around all year. And the Ravens offense, I would say, has been not one of the most disappointing groups in the NFL, but something that I've been paying attention to. I've been keeping my eye on it because it's been a little bit concerning. I mean, through seven weeks, the Ravens, who are one of the best offenses that we've seen in a long time in 2019, are 19th in offensive DVOA and 21st throwing the ball. So I think it's a huge test for Lamar Jackson and that unit to see what they can do against a really good Steelers defense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we talk about the Ravens being disappointing. Partially it's because their bar is so high. Of course. We just saw them evolve so much week to week to week last year. And we're, you know, just kind of like constantly surprised about the new and amazing ways that Lamar Jackson could beat you. And that hasn't been happening on a week to week basis this year. I am like you said though. I'm I'm really curious about this offensive versus defensive matchup because Steelers defense is so well coached. They're so disciplined. I just think that they're going to do a really good job on Lamar and are not going to have those type of breakdowns where it only takes, you know, a you know, a tiny sliver of a breakdown for Lamar Jackson to take advantage uh, with his legs and I don't think he's going to have a ton of those opportunities against the Steelers. Although we, you know, you mentioned it when we were talking about trades, the one big question is what are they doing at that inside linebacker spot? And is that going to be one place where the Ravens, the way that they're built with the way Lamar Jackson runs the ball, some of their other aspects of their running game, is that one place where they could take advantage? So there are a few different things. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it is worth watching. I went back and I watched that week five game from last year. Lamar only played in one of their games last season because the other one was week 17. And Mark Andrews did a decent amount of work in the middle of the field working against Mark Barron, who is no longer there. But if you're dealing with, again, linebackers like we talked about that aren't as good in coverage as somebody like Devin Bush is, can Mark Andrews do some of that with option routes in the middle of the field on high leverage plays? Because they're going to have one linebacker in there even if they go dime, and that's probably going to be... And then they did use... It's Patrick on Andrews in the red zone a little bit. So I'll be curious to see how much man they play with Minka on Andrews instead of playing that robber role that he's been playing in the middle of the field. So that's something to maybe keep an eye on if they feel more comfortable with that matchup. The other thing is the Raven, a lot of defenses this year have been playing those read option plays with Lamar and forcing him to give the ball, really staying outside and just not wanting to get beat around the edge. And I'll be curious to see how the Steelers play that. Because last year, 
they it's you can always tell when a team is well coached and like what their coaching points are. So watching those plays from last year, they were splitting the difference between the running back and Lamar. So just kind of making the decision difficult for him. A lot of times when those guys are on blocks, Dupree and Watt, they fly down the line of scrimmage. They're aggressive players. That's their scheme. Against the Ravens, they kind of play passively and make his decision difficult. I'll be curious to see what that looks like this year if they try to, again, split the difference. So the linebacking, whether it's on the outside or in the middle for the Steelers, is definitely the number one question for them coming into this game. So is there any matchup on the other other side of the ball that you're that you're really interested in seeing where, you know, I know we've talked a little bit about what the what the Steeler like the Steelers wide receiver core, how they're going to split things up now. Are you doing more for Chase Claypool? What do you like about that matchup and who do you think might have an edge there? I just think it's interesting stylistically because you have two of the, I think, the two blitz heaviest teams in the NFL this season and two quarterbacks who have performed vastly different against the blitz this year. So last year, Lamar, and this is, again, something to watch with the, um, if we're going back to the Steelers defense for a second, Lamar has been blitzed on 58 dropbacks this season. He's averaging five and a half yards per attempt on those dropbacks with two interceptions. You compare that to last season, he was 7.7 yards per attempt, 24 touchdowns, three picks. And a lot of those blitzes that he struggled with this year are coming out of when the Steelers or the Ravens go empty. So are you going to really go after them in those passing situations? Because that's usually where the Steelers are a little bit more passive. And I think that's something to watch. And then when you flip it, the Roethlisberger is getting the ball out at an absurdly <laughs> quick rate. It's like 2.2 per second snap to throw, which is the fastest rate in the NFL, which has always been something he's done. But we said it on the Sunday show, more than half of his receptions are coming five yards or fewer past the line of scrimmage. So if the Ravens do their typical thing where they're sending a lot of heat, that really aligns with him getting the ball out quickly like he's done this year. And he's been pretty good against the Blitz. So I'll be curious to see if the Ravens kind of want to sit back, make him play quarterback a little bit more, and not allow those quick decisions, get the ball out fast to the yak guys they have on that offense. That's definitely the number one thing I'm curious about when the Steelers have the ball. Yeah, I th- it's going to be really, really interesting to see because I think that the Steelers are just, are they the most complete team in the NFL right now? I just think that they have. I mean, the Bucks, the Bucks definitely have the Bucks. Argument. Yeah, it's probably the, the Bucks and the Steelers, which. I would say the Bucks do because I think if you look at teams that have a good offense and good defense, you're right. that The, the point is well taken. And I think they're the most complete teams in their respective conferences. But I have a lot of questions about how sustainable this version of the Steelers' offense is. They've made it work, but they're doing a lot of you know five-yard completion, five-yard completion, five-yard completion, first down. That's a hard way to sustain good offense. And when they start playing against better defenses, I'm wondering if that's possible. Right. Tampa has no questions about their offense. They're picking up chunks of yardage at will over there. So even though the Steelers are competent on offense and really good on defense, I have a question about how far their offense can take them as currently constructed. So all of that said, I'm going to pick the Steelers. I think the Steelers win this game. Where are you at? I, I think I'm going to do the same because I think that the Ravens' offense is shaky enough as currently constructed, and Lamar has struggled against the Blitz enough that this could be an ugly game. I mean, he's now near the bottom of the league in passing efficiency over the past three weeks, and it's not as if they've been playing against defenses that are nearly as good as Pittsburgh's is. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Steelers' defense just kind of dominated and defined this game. Although I would love to see a little Lamar Jackson like redemption game, like a stick I think it to he's you, be but fine. I just think that we are firmly in Act Two 
of this Greg Roman offense with Lamar Jackson and figuring out how they're going to respond to the way that teams are playing them. Again, it seems like teams are hell-bent on not allowing Lamar to keep the ball outside the tackles. Does that lead to more design power runs like we saw against the Eagles for that long touchdown last year? Are they going to try to get Lamar between the tackles rather than outside if people are trying to contain him a little bit more? Just stuff like that. It's like, how do you respond to teams' responses to you? And I think that's exactly where the Ravens are right now. I'm just really depressed this game isn't in prime time. I, I don't understand why it's not. I mean, What's CBS had to game pre- this week. It's oh, the the Sunday night game is Cowboys Eagles, which oh my, the God. networks. You know, I'm sh- they're no matter how bad those teams are, they're reluctant to give up Cowboys Eagles in prime time. But I mean, couldn't you couldn't you have given us Steelers Ravens? Who's the Cowboys quarterback right now? What's his name? It's, it's some dude from William and Mary. Danucci. You're I making believe. that up. I'm Get pretty sure it's Danucci. They, they, they're the Cowboys are expected to add Cooper Rush back to the roster. <laughs> Should they? So they want to trade. They want to trade the Broncos for Blake Bortles. By the way, people were saying that this week, where it was they were trying to say, did the Cowboys trade for a quarterback? You think the Cowboys believe they're in a position to like win some games this year? That seems like a terrible idea. Why would you give up draft capital for this garbage Cowboys team? <laughs> when has Jerry Jones anything. made good decisions? I know, I know. But there's, there, there's no season to save in Dallas. I'm not sure what people are getting at. Ben DiNucci. DiNucci, I was the guy right. taking reps right now. I, You could have given me 20 guesses and I probably would not have gotten there. That's how purposefully I have not paid attention to the Cowboys this week because well get ready prime time Ben DiNucci I know god it's gonna be great all right let's get to our favorite matchups of the week Lindsay why don't you get us started which one are you gonna be watching most this week all right so another game that should be in prime time uh is the Niners versus the Seahawks and the specific matchup in this game is the Niners running game against the Seattle defense and I wanted to talk about this matchup specifically because of the coaching job that the Niners have been doing and not just Kyle Shanahan, but Bobby Turner, who's the running backs coach there because, you know, the Niners have been decimated by injuries, especially the running back core this year. But every guy that they've been trotting out there this year from Raheem Mostert to Jarek McKinnon to uh, some guy named Jamichael Hasty, they're all easily averaging. Who over, looks really explosive. Right? It's amazing. Every and single guy they plug in just has a Jeff pop Wilson. To yeah, I mean, it's amazing. they're all averaging over four point uh, four yards a carry. Um, I believe Hasty was, you know, he had over six yards a carry last week against New England. And this is just what Bobby Turner does. And it's just, I just have such an appreciation for this running scheme that Kyle Shanahan has put together and just the coaching job that Bobby Turner has done for 25 years, but really is continuing to do this year where they're just cycling guys through. These guys are really well prepared. They know what they're doing, despite when they shouldn't know what they're doing. I mean, Michael Hasty is an undrafted rookie who, you know, shouldn't know what he's doing and is going out and ripping off, you know, six yards of carry against the Patriots last week. And yes, the Patriots have a gazillion issues and we're going to talk about the Patriots and all their issues. But it just, you know, it just really speaks to the plan that they have there and how well coached they are. And I'm just really interested in this matchup because the Seahawks defense has been bad and their run defense over the last couple weeks has been a major major liability you know they've given up they gave up 159 rushing yards to the cardinals last week they're giving up more than 150 yards a game over their last three weeks you know dalvin cook had a huge game until he got hurt a couple weeks ago in that primetime game against the vikings so 
I, I just think that we know what the Niners want to do to beat you and they want to run the ball and it doesn't matter now who's back there. And I felt like we did a lot of hand wringing early in the season about who their running backs were. And, um, you know, Tevin Coleman has been hurt. I think he practiced today. So there's a chance that he might get to play, but they're just setting themselves up now that it does not matter who is back there. They're going to be able to, to run the ball. And that's a, that's a credit to the coaching staff. It's, it's amazing to me that the Niners, I believe, had the highest paid backfield in the NFL last season. Yeah, because they were paying and Tevin Coleman a lot of money. Tevin Coleman, Jarek McKinnon, and Kyle Juszczyk. Kyle Juszczyk is in a different conversation, but it still applies to the backfield. It's almost as if no one has told Kyle Shanahan that it doesn't matter who his running backs are. Like Someone should just get in Kyle's ear being like, dude, you don't need to do this. Like It just doesn't matter who yeah, you're like plugging in his, there. Spend like the money dad. elsewhere. Like his dad should it's call the same him. Thing. But it's, it's been that way for a while. I was literally just having a conversation. I had to leave the podcast to take a call about how you need multiple guys. We were talking about the person I was talking with about the Falcons running backs when Shanahan was there, how they had Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman, both of whom were like third round picks and then got paid. But when they were you know young mid-round picks and you have both of them, that's how you should build your backfield. And I think that that's the thing. No one has told Kyle that he doesn't need to spend on running backs. The Bobby Turner thing, I think if you were built like, all right, so if you were building your dream coaching staff, he would be the running backs coach, obviously, just based on everything that he has done. Yeah. The offensive line coach would probably be Dante Scarnecchia, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, he's Mike Munchak. I was saying, I mean, I would say if guys that are actively coaching right now, um, they don't have to actively be coaching guys that like have been coaches since we were doing this. Yeah. I mean, Scarnecchia is the gold standard, but Mike Munchak is probably just a, a sliver a sliver below that. Um, Who would be the quarterbacks coach? Probably an overqualified offensive coordinator. All, all good quarterbacks coaches eventually start to call plays. Oh, yeah. So it feels like finding a guy who's just a quarterbacks coach would be difficult. Yeah. Right now I'm going to call Pep Hamilton if we want to just get a guy in. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. And then wide receivers coach is, a, I think that's a, an interesting one too. Daryl yeah. Drake did a really good job with some of those guys in Arizona, the late Daryl Drake, who I, yeah. I loved talking to Pittsburgh. about that position. Yeah. And in Pittsburgh, they did a good job. He's somebody that I would throw out there. I think position coaches are so underrated in the success of just how offenses and defenses go. I was watching the Rams-Bears game again today. Why? Why did you do that Great to question. yourself? Great question. I, I, I would love to know the answer. And I was watching just some of the things that Troy Hill and even Burgess, one of their backup safeties, was doing. And you just see how sound those guys play, how downhill they're playing. Troy Hill's interception he had in the end zone. They motioned Anthony Miller from right to left, and Hill followed him and bumped out the inside corner outside so Hill could stay in the slot. So the guy he was covering is not the guy he followed in motion. Somehow, as the ball's getting snapped, he finds that guy, maintains leverage, tracks him all the way to the back of the end zone, tips the ball for an interception. That sort of motion and it, the exact thing you're trying to do is create the confusion they didn't create. And just how many times you had guys playing downhill. When you watch the All-22, it's just so clear. Aubrey Pleasant is the cornerback's coach there. He's been there since McVay started. And think about what he's done. Marcus Peters succeeded there. Aqib Tlaib succeeded there. Troy Hill's been really good for them. Jalen Ramsey looks like a different player now than he did when he was traded from Jacksonville. I know a lot of those guys are highly drafted, but they've consistently gotten the most out of the players on their back end. 
And that's not an accident. And I think you see that with these staffs that are really well orchestrated. I think that's exactly what Kyle Shanahan has done with that offensive staff in San Francisco. And that's what Bobby Turner has done forever. I mean, he's had some really good players. You know, he got to coach Terrell Davis and Clinton Portis. But he's also, you know, he made a legit NFL player out of Alfred Morris and Orlando, uh, Orlando's Gary and just all of these guys you've never really, you know, Selvin Young. You remember Selvin Young? Yes, was, I do yeah, remember so, Selvin I mean, Young. There were guys Texas, who, he was fast. He he was really fast. I always remember him because he was he was the Broncos starting running back the first year that I covered the Broncos. They went through like 16 running backs that year, but he came into the season saying he was going to rush for 2000 yards. Um, and so I will never forget Selvin Young because he is of his 2000 yard prediction he came up about seven <laughs> seventeen hundred yards short something in that range but the other thing that I just think is so interesting about or so notable about Bobby Turner is that he just is so ingrained in this scheme and with the Shanahan yeah and I believe there's only one year of his NFL coaching career that he has not been with either Mike Kyle or both and that was in 2009 when he actually stayed on with the Broncos when after Mike got fired he stayed on one year with Josh McDaniels and then when Mike got the job in Washington he went and joined the Washington staff obviously but then he ended up going to work work for Kyle when Kyle was the offensive coordinator in Atlanta so he's been to a lot of Super Bowls he's coached a lot of really good backs and it's paying off for the Niners right now when they just really need you know, they just needed something. They needed a spark with that offense and the running game has given that to them. And, you know, I, this game, I mean, the Seahawks are vulnerable now. You know, I do think that, that Russell Wilson gives them a chance in every single game. And you know that this game is going to be weird. You know, it's going to come down to the final play in the fourth quarter. It might come down to inches. It's going to come down to some, something weird is going to happen, right? Because one, it's the Seahawks and it's Seahawks Niners where, I mean, the last game that they played last year, it literally came down to, one tackle for inches outside of uh, outside of the end zone. And I just think right now this this Niners running game gives them a really, really interesting element. And I'm not sure if the way that Seattle is constructed right now is ready to stop it. It's interesting you mentioned the Bobby Turner scheme thing because I think it speaks to an overall belief and philosophy that you see around the NFL and how it differs between teams, right? Like with Shanahan, he has all these guys who've come from his scheme. His offensive line coach, whose name escapes me right now, it's going to drive me crazy. John Benton. They're, his offensive line coach, John Benton, was he was the offensive line coach with the Texans in 08 and 09 when they were running that scheme. He did some time in Miami when they were running that outside zone scheme. And now he's back with San Francisco. Bobby Turner comes from that scheme. And you could just say, well, you know, the scheme makes the players – that running scheme is so based on aiming points and about teaching your running backs what they're looking for. It's not an accident that he's had so much success with those guys. So, And then you have other teams that they try to pick and choose, right? It's like the menu of trying to steal from different sorts of schemes. You have, oh, this guy comes from this background. This guy comes from this background. And at times, I think that's important. I think that pollinating your offense with new ideas from different sorts of back, schematic backgrounds often helps. But I also can understand the argument for we're going to do it this way and we're going to have experts in this style of football and that's how we're going to succeed because we're going to teach it better than anyone else. One more just position coach I want to mention before we move on because I wrote about him earlier in the year when I was writing about the Steelers and I did not mention him and I should have. is Carl Dunbar, who's the Steelers defensive line coach. If you look at his career, he was the Bears defensive line coach in 2004 when they had one of the maybe the best defense in the NFL that season. Uh, in 2005, he was LSU's defensive line coach. That's the year that Glenn Dorsey was at LSU 
that he was drafted in the top five as a defensive lineman. Then he goes to Minnesota where the Williams wall was. And then Jared Allen eventually gets there and goes nuts and is getting 20 sacks a year. Then from 2012 to, to, to through 2014 was with the Jets and Rex Ryan where they were just crushing people up front. And then in 2016 through 2017, he was in Alabama where they produced like 45 first round offensive linemen. And then now he's in Pittsburgh where you're seeing just so many guys develop at a really high rate. So this stuff is not an accident. You find the right guys, it usually tends to work out well. And then you look at a staff like the Jets where none of their position coaches have ever had success anywhere. And it's not hard to realize why this stuff happens the way that it does. All right, let's get to mine. I want to talk about the Lions offense against the Colts defense because... And the reason I want to is because the Lions offenses look pretty good over the last couple of weeks throwing the ball. Since Kenny Galladay has gotten back, it's been a different sort of group. And that's not a surprise. He is so good. And I think him and Stafford have such a connection. And the Colts defense was one of the best units in the NFL for the first few games of the year. And it's still been pretty good. You know, they had a rough half against the Bengals last time they played. But for the most, that really locked down in the second half. And I'm just curious what this Colts defense is going to look like for the rest of the season. Is this going to be a unit like, let's say, last year's 49ers, where it's a front four rush, good secondary play that can carry them for a good chunk of the season? They're getting back Darius Leonard this week, and they're getting back Kamiko Torre from the physically unable to perform list. He was awesome last season before breaking his ankle. So is that injection of some of the best players talent-wise on their defense getting back going to really allow them to be the unit that we saw for the first couple weeks of the year. You, know, you watch the way the Bengals attacked Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. A lot of stuff over the middle of the field, the exact type of plays that Darius Leonard would hopefully erase with him in the lineup. So I want to see what that team looks like against a Lions offense that has more pop than a lot of people think. And suddenly the Lions are in like a position to potentially compete for a wild card spot. You know, I'm not sure if they're going to compete in that division, but They've been really fun over the last couple of weeks and the, the the offensive pieces that they have. And, you know, I was looking, we were talking about trades before and I was like, well, they tried to trade Marvin Jones. But right now it just seems like they have this really good offensive nucleus. And it shouldn't be surprised that Matthew Stafford is playing well and that Kenny Galladay has given them kind of this injection that they needed. So um, I'm, I'm just excited to watch the Lions offense, which is something that I never actually thought that I would say at any point in 2020. But here we are. There's weird stuff happening. Well, coming into the season, I actually thought that they could be pretty good. You know, I really believe that this could be one of the better passing offenses in the NFL from an efficiency standpoint because of what they did last season. They were really good throwing the ball last year. They were one of the most efficient passing offenses in the league. But then Matthew Stafford got hurt. So I was curious whether that same formula could apply to this year. And you look at it, over their last couple games, Matthew Stafford is third in the NFL in EPA per play after Ryan Tannehill and Ryan Fitzpatrick over his last 74 snaps. I know it's a small sample size, but they've looked good over the last couple weeks. And with Galladay back in, can they keep that efficiency up? So it's just a test for me. You know, when you, a lot of times with defenses in the league, I think this was true for the 49ers and the Patriots last year. When the competition starts getting better, you see defenses fall off astronomically when they're not truly good defenses. And I think that's the question for the Colts. When they're playing some of these better offenses, can they get the results that we saw early in the year? I don't think they're one of the best two defenses in the league. I think that that belongs to the Steelers and the Bucks pretty definitively right now. But can this Colts be a top five unit? And can that be the reason that they are relevant in the wildcard hunt in the AFC? All right, Lindsay, let's get to who has the most at stake in the league this week. Who do you have? All right, Drew Locke 
in Denver. Oh, man. His poor son, Drew Locke. Poor Drew Locke. Um, yes, poor Drew Locke. The honeymoon. I want is him a, to be good so bad. No, well, this he is seems a, like such a good guy, and just the Mizzou thing. I really want Drew Locke to be good. It's this is unfortunate. And I think John Elway really desperately wants him to be good. <laughs> and I do think he, I do think there's a lot of potential there. But the honeymoon is completely over for Drew Locke, and you know, he hasn't played well overall the last couple of weeks. I don't think this his box score his stat line in new england was maybe fair to how he played because he actually played really well early in that game and he really suffered from some drops and some some really bad drops including a couple in the end zone and then he threw some bad picks late in the game and so if they had lost that game it was going to be because of their late picks and he made some really bad decisions on sunday against kansas city and there's a lot of people that are ready to just completely write him off now and he's, he's been a, the worst quarterback in the NFL this year according to a lot of advanced metrics it has not been good for Drew Locke in 2020 yeah it hasn't been great and you could you know the case for him is that he hasn't been getting helped out a lot I mean he lost Cortland Sutton Noah Fant has missed a big chunk of the season he came back last week was clearly nowhere close to 100 percent Philip Lindsay has been in and out of the lot he had turf toe for a few weeks and then he suffered a concussion last week so the chances that he gets to play this week against the Chargers are, are, are really slim and Melvin Gordon has been really really unreliable I mean from on the field unreliable in terms of fumbles you know he had that really dumb flea flicker where he f- literally flicked the ball over Drew Locke's head last week against Kansas it, it, City. Which, I, I started laughing so hard. It I was mean, so great. It was it was a bad play call and it was terrible execution. I mean, it was just like they need to tear that whole thing up. But And then Melvin Gordon also had a DUI, which is unreliable. So there's a lot of things that have worked against him, I would say. But, you know, it's fair to wonder right now is, well, you said he's by a lot of metrics, been the worst quarterback in the NFL and dead last in EPA per play this season, which is that's really bad. But now, when you look at worse the AFC than their West, New York quarterbacks, that's remarkable. That's yeah. that's pretty it's good stuff. Um, so you have to wonder, okay, now how much of this is coaching? How much of it is schematics? And how much of it is Locke making bad throws and bad decisions? I think all of that is intertwined. But you know. Drew Locke is the focal piece of, or the focal point of everything that the Broncos are trying to do long-term here. They thought that they had their guy and that was going to set them up for long-term success. They were going to finally end this quarterback carousel that they were on. And now, you know, we don't know. We don't know about that right now. And the fact that the Broncos are playing the Chargers and playing Justin Herbert, and I'm not going to rehash everything that you and Nate talked about the other night, although we, I did tweet this at you on Sunday during the games about John Elway's obsession with, with quarterbacks and tall quarterbacks specifically. But, you know, they're playing Justin Herbert right now, and Drew Locke has been the worst quarterback in that division, and it hasn't been subs- very close. And it's not great that there's a big gap between Drew Locke and Derek Carr right now, or a big gap between... Drew Locke and Justin Herbert, who should not be a better quarterback right now, just given the situation that he's in. So he's under a ton of pressure. Um, He really needs to win. He really needs to play well. And that entire Broncos offense just needs to look functional uh, for the first time in basically all season. So hypothetically, let's say Drew Locke plays like a version of this guy for the rest of the year. He's a bottom three to five quarterback. All, all year, even with the challenges thrown in front of him with the injuries to their personnel. Do you see a world where they would move on from him after this season if they have a reasonable replacement? Because they have built this team for quarterback success. 
Their offensive line has played much better than they have in you know other years. I think that their talent that they have up front is at least solid. Cushionberry has been kind of a disaster for them at center, but Garrett Bowles is having the best season of his career. The right tackle spot, they've had some injuries, but has been functional. You know, Risner, Glasgow are solid players. And the weapons, especially next year when those that group can get healthy, I think is set up for a quarterback to play well. And we've seen what Pat Shermer is. You know, it's not as if Pat Shermer is a first-time offensive coordinator that has had no success and this is a disaster. This is not, in my opinion, Adam Gase with the Jets. This yeah. is a guy who has had success with middling quarterbacks in the past, even if it's tempered success. If a guy like, let's say Sam Darnold is available for a second round pick, do the Broncos, are, would they be willing to pull the plug on the Drew Locke experience if this does not change by the end of the season? So Darnold is the one guy. He's the one name that makes me say, hmm, maybe. Because of that class, uh, that 2018 draft class, when the Broncos had the number five pick, they looked at all of those guys really, really hard. They had them all in the building. They went to all their pro days. I mean, they were really, really scouting that class really, really hard. And Darnold was Elway's guy. That's the guy who John wanted in that class. It wasn't Josh Allen. It wasn't Baker Mayfield. It was Darnold. And obviously Darnold was gone before the Broncos picked. They took Bradley Chubb. So there's a little bit of me that wonders that maybe that would be the guy. But I don't think you look at Darnold and Darnold versus Locke. And if it's this, is this this isn't, Peyton, you know, the, the ability to sign Peyton Manning. I think John Elway will never give up on the quarterback thing and needing to get it right. It's a huge part of his legacy now. It's the biggest dent in his legacy as an executive is his inability to find a long-term franchise quarterback. And I think they will be willing to give Drew Locke more time given how difficult this season has been. I do wonder if like the Josh Allen model, if that's like maybe their best case scenario where it is so rare for a guy who has been inaccurate to get more accurate. Josh Allen is kind of breaking all of those models, but I wonder if there might be. Josh Allen of, is going to inspire a lot of terrible decision making from NFL teams, right? Over the next 10 years. <laughs> so I just wonder though if you know with the right guys around him, because you know I do really like the Bills' plan and what they've done to help Josh Allen succeed, and I do like a lot of the Broncos' plan and what they're doing to try to help Drew Locke succeed. And if he just maybe needs a little bit more time, he's only started eight games. You know, he he did miss that chunk I of the season right now. I tend to agree with you. So I'm not ready to like completely write him off right now, but there is no question to me that he is under a ton of pressure and that he just has to play better. And this whole, if, if he keeps having more games like this, these questions are not going to be being asked just by like us on the podcast. I mean, it's going to be the, the questions that they're having inside the building. It's going to be around the league. I mean, I know, you know, Elway hasn't had any media availability in quite a while, but those are the questions that are going to be getting asked to John. Drew's already getting some of that. Um, today, I think he'd actually dropped a, that he's been getting a lot of criticism since he was at the university of Missouri. He dropped a Missouri that's on how, everybody that's today. He's really, he's really retreating into his comfort zone there. Right. So, um, and look, he deserved a lot of the, the criticism that he got early at his time in, in Mizzou, but he handled it well. I do think he has the right makeup. And that's one of the things the Broncos like about him is like who he is as a person. And I think he's, going to be able to handle it but man it's it's going to be rough for for him and the Broncos if they don't beat the Chargers this week I tend to agree with you I think that it would be a little bit rash to yank to say that he's not our guy after the season when you consider some of the injuries they've had and the fact that the circumstances are not what they envisioned coming into the year 
but he has been objectively awful. And at a certain point, you're better served pulling the plug sooner than later and giving yourself the best chance to get the most out of the supporting cast you built around him. So I'll be curious to see what it looks like for the rest of the year, but it has not been good over the last couple of games. All right. I don't have a person that has the most at stake this week. I guess you could maybe say Cam Newton, but it almost feels like this era of the Patriots has the most at stake this week. I mean, it's not Tom Brady. Tom Brady is gone, but for the most part, you know, this nucleus outside of Tom Brady is the same. I mean, you have the same group of players that have been there in this version of the Patriots, whether it's Devin McCourty, uh, Stefan Gilmore, I know Dante Hightower has opted out of the season, but he's still on the roster. The offensive line with Shaq Mason, Marcus Cannon, Joe Thune. These are guys that have made up this last vestige of the Patriots dynasty. If they lose this week to Buffalo and they go down three games in the division, do the Patriots say it's time to be sellers? You know, we have all these guys. Devin McCourty has no guarantees left on his deal after this season. Joe Thune's on the franchise tag. Stephon Gilmore's name has been thrown around in trade rumors in, over the last couple days. Do we see the door shut on an era of Patriots football that goes beyond Tom Brady? Because I think that we might be on the horizon for that here. Well, so I believe it was last week the Patriots put out their all dynasty team which to me was a sign that the dynasty was over, that they were like, cool, we're just moving past. They put Tom Brady on it. It was the last time that we're going to hear them. Yeah, utter Tom, Tom Brady. made it. That's great. He made they, it. He was their one real underdog. Good for Tom. They, had, they did put two long snappers on the team from the dynasty era. But I think it's like. That is the most Bill Belichick bullshit that has ever happened in the history of the world. One quarterback, two long snappers. It's because he couldn't pick between Lonnie Paxton and Joe Cardona. It's I mean, who could? <laughs> right? I mean, that's like Sophie's choice. I can't even imagine. Um, but I was like, okay, you, you, we're going to put Tom Brady's name on this, and then we're not going to speak again of him for five years until we can, or whenever he retires, then we can put him in the, the Hall of Fame or the Ring of Honor or whatever it is that they call it there in Foxborough. But yeah, I mean... It's so I have so much faith in Bill Belichick, right? I mean, it's so hard to like just see him ever giving up or moving, you know, trying to look forward. But they're so old, right? They they were they're not built to win right now. It's so hard to watch their bodies and offense. And that's why earlier I was just like, just give them somebody who can run. I just like, it's depressing to watch Julian Edelman. It just like, looks like he can't move. And whether that's he's dealing with injuries or whatever it is. I don't know. I mean, they two weeks ago, I was not ready to panic. I thought like, okay, they're going to, they had so much disruption because of COVID. You know, this is a really tough situation for them not being able to practice. And Cam Newton obviously needs practice time. And how are they going to continue to evolve on offense? But right now I just don't think they have, I have the, they have the bodies to do so. Um, so yeah, a ton of pressure on them. And right I mean, now I just two and five. And yeah. You, and you think about the other teams in the NFC or in the, in the AFC right now, the, the Ravens are five and one. The Ravens are going to get a wild card spot. The Browns are five and two. The Colts are four and two and can potentially beat the Lions to go to five and two this week. You're going to be down two and a half to three games, even in the wild card standings, let alone what the division looks like. Even if Bill Belichick doesn't want to tear it all down and to you know kind of start planning for next year, the way that the season has unfolded might give him no choice. And they play the Bills this week. So we're going to learn a lot about kind of yes. where they're at in this, you know, where they stand in the AFC East, if they're going to be able to be competitive in that division. You know, 
Bill Belichick would never say there's a must-win game on November 1st, but this feels as much of a must-win game as we've seen for this franchise in a really, really long time. It felt like when Cam was playing well at the beginning of the season that they were going to be able to pull this off. They were going to be able to pull off the let's get to the next era of Patriots football. Here's the bridge. We're going to get over it with the same nucleus outside of Tom Brady for the most part that had carried us for the last five years. And now it seems like that ship might have sailed. And the conversation is going to have to drastically shift before the end of the year. So what questions do you need to have answered now about who the Patriots are? Is it is Cam Newton your long-term quarterback? Are we going to see them trying to get Jarrett Stidham more work? What do you need? What do you want to find out if they decide, okay, we're not we're not playing for 2020 anymore? What do you think they do? about quarterback and do they give up on the Cam Newton thing already? Or I, I don't know. I just have so many questions about kind of where they're going to go at that position for the rest of this year. And then long-term. I mean, they said this week that Cam is their starter and he gives them the best chance to win. So I expect him to be there for at least the short term, but I don't know the answer to that. I think it's hard to know what they see for themselves because this is such uncharted territory for them. You know, we've seen other teams that have been able to kind of say, all right, Let's be in a semi-rebuilding period. Let's kind of take a step back. And there are a lot of teams that, even with general managers that have been there for a while, have had to go through that. The Patriots have never had to go through that. So it's just kind of hard for me to even make a prediction about what that version of the Patriots will look like because we've never had to face it before. All right, Lindsay, every week we ask, what is your one big question headed into the weekend? What is your one big question heading into week eight? How's Tua going to play? Oh, that's a good one. It's Tua time. One. So I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. So, you know, we've been building I'm up really to this excited. for, you know, a week and a half now since the, the Dolphins made that move during the bye week. And now we get to see Tua. And it's been a long time since we've seen Tua play. And I'm not counting his whatever handful of snaps that he took late in the game against the Jets a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm so curious. He is... As much as I'm excited about some of these other games that we've already talked about, he's the single player that I'm most looking forward to watching on Sunday. And I'm a little worried about what Aaron Donald might do to him. I'm somewhat concerned about that as well, because the Dolphins offensive line for as improved as they are compared to last year, it is still a group that Aaron Donald could take advantage of. And I am not far removed from rewatching the chaos that Aaron Donald caused last Monday night, because I watched the Bears game over again today. And my big question is, can the Bears do something on offense, something. I wanted to do something that looks competent. It, <laughs> I went back and I, because I wanted to see, I wanted to do like a diagnostic. It's like, all right, what is actually wrong here? And the answer is everything. Everything is wrong. You have Foles playing too fast in some moments and too slow in others. He is sped up so much by how bad that offensive line is playing and by virtue of Aaron Donald being there. But even before this, he had one of the fastest snap to throws in the NFL. I believe he was in the top three. He's getting rid of the ball so quickly. They're just living underneath, and it's just not a way to sustain offense when you don't have that dynamic of playmakers. I mean, it's just they haven't been able to do anything. The running game is a fucking disaster. Like, it is just everything about it is wrong. And I know that when you're playing against Aaron Donald, Rashad Coward just got destroyed by Aaron Donald last week. And Michael Brockers did a fantastic job up front of just maintaining gap integrity, making jobs harder on people, eating up double teams. They just aren't able to get any sort of movement. And even when they're trying to do some stuff that's a little bit more creative, like guys coming across the formation, I can't tell you how many split zone 
you know, wham type plays I watched last week where Jimmy Graham, who shouldn't be doing that anyway, Jimmy Graham should never be blocking people. Just don't even pretend like it's an option. And Demetrius Harris just weren't blocking anyone. Just guys that not even touching anybody on a given play and David Montgomery getting dropped for two yards. Nick Foles passing up throws that came open a little bit later because he didn't think he had time. Nick Foles not getting the ball out on time in some cases when he should have. It's just it's coming from every single direction right now, and it's become an unwatchable slog. It makes me tired to watch them play offense right now. All I want is for them to show some flashes of competency. Can you do that? And the answer is no. I think we need to be asking some big questions about what this team should be looking like in 2021 and beyond. That's all I'll say. And I will say, I'm sorry. None of this is surprising. The only no, surprising thing so is that bad. it took until almost Halloween for you and Bears fans around the Chicagoland area to have this sort of meltdown because I think we all could have seen this coming and it's not going to get better this week. I don't think because Allen Robinson is a concussion. Your most dynamic offensive player isn't there. The only dynamic offensive player, only dynamic offensive player. Make sure to get that right. (laughs) Only. I, I actually do like Darnell Mooney. My question always with the Bears was, was Trubisky's presence and just overall ineptitude enough to short circuit Nagy as a play caller, designer, thinker, all of those things? Could they not run a functional offense in part because their quarterback, they had such little faith in their quarterback that it was hard to design something? The answer to that definitively is no now. I don't think Nick Foles is good, and I think Nick Foles' complete and utter lack of mobility is a huge concern behind an offensive line that can't block anybody. It was amazing to me. I went back and I watched the Jets-Bills game this from last week. Again, why, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I was talking to Matt Fairburn, and I wanted to watch the Bills. And you watch Josh Allen and Sam Darnold behind offensive lines that are struggling. And their ability to make guys miss, to extend plays, it almost makes me think the Bears might be better off just throwing Trubisky back in there because at least he can do something that's volatile. Nick Foles gives you none of that. And that's the biggest thing is that Foles has not served Nagy in that role. He has not made them more cohesive. He's not made the sequencing of plays make any more sense. The same problems in large part they had last year have extended no matter who the quarterback is. And when that's the case, the problems are about more than the quarterback, even if both your quarterbacks are bad. And I think that we have reached that point with the Bears. And it's a point that I am sad to have reached, but I don't think there's any explaining it away anymore. Well, that's a depressing way to wrap up, <laughs> wrap up our, our segment here. I live but... a depressing life, so it's totally fine. It actually falls in line with the way I feel most of the time. All right, Lindsay, thank you very much. That actually was fun, despite how we ended <laughs> up. The last note. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell I'm going to tell my daughter in her podcast, her prediction podcast this week, to not pick the Bears. She Thank loves Bears, and she's picked the Bears every week. So I think I'm going to we'll lean hard and try to try to convince her to pick the Saints this week. Your daughter's happiness is very important to me, and I want her to be better than the Bears. I want her to know a better life than having any sort of investment in the Bears, even if it's just on a week-to-week basis. Well, it probably is painful to listen to right now, but I did let her watch a little bit of Monday Night Football, and she immediately noticed how good Aaron Donald was. And I think part of it is because 99 is just a really cool number, but she also was like, wow, I like him. So she's yeah, she's I got do- a good she's got good taste in defensive linemen, at least. I like him most of the time. I did not like him last week. Lindsay, thank you very much. All right. Joining me now, uh, someone who I've been a big fan of for a very long time, someone I've been privileged to get to know over the years, the Athletic Zone, Bruce Feldman. Bruce, how you doing? I'm doing good. Good to be on with you, Robert. Thank you. 
Absolutely. So your book, Flipping the Script about Ed Ogeron, came out on Tuesday, I believe. And there are so many NFL kind of adjacent storylines that go along with the book. We wanted to have you on both as a way to talk about it, but also to dig into a lot of the guys that are relevant to this NFL season are going to be relevant way beyond this NFL season. So I read the excerpt that you sent me. It was a lot of stuff about Joe Burrow and Joe Brady. And one of the things that really jumped out to me was just how many sliding doors moments are required for a season like LSU had last year and for careers to be spawned like that LSU season did. So when you're thinking about this, were you struck by that at any point, just how many things need to happen and how many Joe Burrows and Joe Brady's might be out there in the world that just never got the opportunities to align in the ways that these guys did? Well, think about it this way. Like, you know, you know when you have a story and you have a story idea you start developing and then all of a sudden it turns out to be way deeper than you yeah. ever imagined initially, right? <laughs> so um, 13 years ago, I did a, a book about recruiting called Meat Market. Ed Ogeron becomes the central figure in that. I was a fly on the wall. I wanted to see how a football program goes from basically a thousand names on their board to the 25 they sign. And he's such a, a, a unique character, right? Mm -hmm. He was at Ole Miss. It was his first head coaching job. He's kind of this cartoon character-esque guy, right? Quintessential D-line guy. And the book did pretty well. And a lot of people kept on going to me, hey, are you ever going to do a sequel to Meat Market? And I just didn't really think I wanted to or didn't think it made sense or whatever I could, the story I wanted to tell or thought would be viable. And about 18 months ago, I had kept in touch with him. And when he was the interim head coach at USC, was around him quite a bit because I live in LA. And then uh, 18 months ago, he had told me, hey, I got this guy I just hired from the Saints staff he's a really sharp guy and just started going into detail. And so I thought about, you know, just first, you know, working at the athletic, I was like, this would be a great story. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and I, I got really good access. I spent a week with LSU in April of 2019 and was in the meetings and was around Joe and was at practice and then sat down with Brady for a while in his office and came away from that trip thinking, first of all, I had never seen or heard the LSU defense get their butts kicked in practice like they were. <laughs> so I was like, this is interesting. And I came away thinking, man, these guys are going to be really, really good this year. And I didn't know they were going to win a national title good, but I thought they were going to be really good and really interesting. And so I started working on a book proposal then for what I thought was the sequel to Meat Market. Because I knew Ogeron's story, and this kind of lines up with where you were going, you know, big picture wise, is so improbable and so like mind blowing in this regard. He was he was a guy who failed out of his job at, at, after three years. Some was good and some was bad as the head coach at Ole Miss. Usually those guys don't get another chance, right? Mm -hmm. Especially but, position coaches that rise to that level. It just doesn't happen for those guys again. No, it's really improbable. But then you, you, know, you look, and I knew his story because I was around him that year, year plus, was he had been a, an assistant coach on Jimmy Johnson's staff at Miami when they were rolling down there. He coached Cortez Kennedy. He coached The Rock. He coached Warren Sapp. You know, he had a big God, presence. he's that old? He doesn't he look is. that old. Well, he's got he like a youthful a, energy to him. Yeah, it's Louisiana living, I guess. It was, <laughs> but the thing was he, was, he was really young at that point. That was his first big break was on that Miami staff. And he's a wild personality. And at that point, he was living really hard. And he ended up basically blowing everything from his career, loses his job. He ends up in rehab because he has a hard time with uh, alcohol. And so he's dealing with addiction. And 
I think because of that, now look, he's been sober for 20 years, but the lessons he had to learn in that process of going through battling addiction, I think made him way more open and introspective to give a real critical look at who he is and his shortcomings that a lot of times football coaches are really stubborn. They won't do that. So he did that. And then coming out of it, he's Lane's right-hand man at Tennessee and then at USC. So he sees Lane's own failures as a head coach. And he's there around it. So he knows not only this stuff he screwed up, but he's seen the stuff that Lane screwed up. And then he gets to Les Miles at working on his staff at LSU. And I think he's, he was kind of had his eyes open to some of the things in terms of game preparation and prep, prepping a team for a week where he realized there's a lot of stuff that I could, we need to do better at this. And so he has all those things. But the crazy part is the, the other crazy part of this is to get to be the interim head coach at USC, to prove he's not that guy still at Ole Miss, Lane had to get fired early in the year, and Lane did. So he got eight games to prove, hey, he's probably a better coach than we thought. He's not that disaster guy that all, everybody thought he was, or at least he's not still that guy. Then Les Miles, he's on his staff the first year. Les Miles is about to get fired in 2015, and everybody knows it except the team and the you know rallies behind him emotional day in tiger state and they come back beat texas a they don't fire less miles so instead of having a full-blown coaching search at lsu where they would have hired some hot coach or somebody you know with a bigger presence or you know better stock right then than at ogeron who were the guys on. back then in that in that cycle like what what that year who were like the big names you know they were jimbo had been an jimbo fisher had been an assistant there they were going to okay. try to throw a lot of money at him but he was at that point going to leave you know so i don't know who they would have centered on if it came to that but so they keep less on and then he loses the first game at it's at pack it's at uh, lambo and they lose to wisconsin they fire him after the first month so all of a sudden ed ogeron gets a full you know, season to prove his worth there. And I think, so you set that up as a backdrop. And then all of a sudden you get into this where you're talking about 2019, where there's already start to be some dominoes going from things falling into place for from 2017 to 2018. And when he gets to 2018, he has this real interesting situation where he doesn't you know wants to go to the spread but they don't have the pieces really from a receiver standpoint to go full bore into that and so he's kind of caught between the roster they have and the roster he wants because half his recruits are not all the way ready and he gets joe burrow and joe burrow didn't really play much at you know at ohio state on one recruiting service he was a three-star guy and the other one he's a four-star guy but he was not like this you know guy that everybody was raving about or anything but, Even now, he's not somebody who jumps out with like physical gifts. He never has been. It's just something where you have to dig below the surface a little bit to understand what makes him special. Exactly. I mean, if you look at him, he's actually 6'3", but you almost feel like he might be 6'1", right? He's, his arm isn't, isn't a cannon. It's strong enough, but it's not like a wow arm. Now, he's, I think, much more athletic than people give him credit for, and athletic in this sense. You know, he is decisive with what he does he can take off and get first downs. He's not going to do Lamar Jackson and run away from everybody. But in college football, he can he can get 16 yards on third and 11 or something. And the other thing is, I think people didn't realize he was a great high school basketball player, could have played college basketball. And there is, you know, Drew Locke is obviously was, was that guy mm-hmm. too. But I don't think people realize, you know, the point guard and what he was, some of that temperament, some of that competitiveness, some of that vision – 
that all kind of comes into play and the, and the edge about him because he wasn't Dwayne Haskins was the five-star guy. Urban Meyer said was the best high school quarterback he'd ever seen. That wasn't Joe, Joe Burrow. So when, when Burrow is out there, Ogeron has a guy in his staff, Bill Bush, who is a secondary coach for him, but had been at Ohio state. And he kind of was like, if we get this guy, I think we're a playoff team. So Ogeron goes all in and they, they get him there. And it's crazy because they do this official visit and Joe Burrow is not a personality that wants to go through the recruiting process. Like he's not yeah. Tate Martell where he's wants to be, um, you know, all the bells and whistles and get sucked into social media. I mean, he was the opposite of that, but they have all these coaches around on Saturday morning and they're going to go through his film and do like, they want to basically know what he knows and see how, what kind of presence he as he has. And Ogeron's a D line guy and he's a defensive coach. But he's looking around the room and he's got guys who coached 20 years in college football and some in the NFL. And he quickly realizes this kid is the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. And I was like, you know, he's like, no, <laughs> he was forget that. I'm talking everybody, not just like other people. I'm talking everybody. And so he's like, I got to get this guy. And then so they put on the recruiting pitch. He's and he can't feel like he's really connecting with him because he's a different kind of guy than the typical recruit. And so what he was up against was Joe Burrow had big ties, at least emotional to Cincinnati in some regard where Luke Fickle had come from Ohio state, a bunch of guys on the staff had come from Ohio state. So they knew Joe also Joe's girlfriend was graduating and she is from Cincinnati. She was going back there. So that would have been the easier thing for him to do. And ultimately they were able to convince him that, Hey, if you want to make all your dreams really come true, this is the only place you'd have a chance to do it. And he bought into that. His brother yeah. was the one that kind of like sold him hard on it, right? It's like, yeah. You really want to win. Like this is the place where you can actually do it. In Cincinnati, you're going to get followed by the Dwayne Haskins stuff wherever you go because it's not far enough away. LSU is a different world away and it gives you everything that you want. Yeah. And Ogeron did this selling pitch where Dan Burroughs, uh, his older brother, had been a walk-on in Nebraska and really sells him on this. And like Dan's like, yeah, I put together a spreadsheet and like Ed's in my ear and doing all this stuff. And he was kind of awed by it, but he really kind of deputized Dan Burrow to, to really sell Joe if Joe wasn't already sold. And Dan said, you know, or Joe, both of us, both Burrows don't think that Dan was the, the ultimate deciding factor. Ultimately, Joe kind of made that decision on his own. But I think it was a leap of faith by both uh, Ed Ogeron and Joe Burrow to go all in on this. And the way that that they really bought in on Burrow as, and Ed would say this, and I asked Joe Burrow this, you know, a lot in our, in one of our interviews was the LSU guys didn't think when he got there, his arm was kind of underwhelming, even like they thought his arm got stronger from the time he was there, but they wondered maybe Joe had kind of had a weak arm because he had maybe thrown too much to try to prepare for that moment or whatever it was. They just felt like it wasn't as strong as it eventually became while he was there. So they were, you know, they loved all the intangibles. They weren't sure about the the wow physical tools, but they there's some stuff in Flip the Script about when they realize, oh man, this guy's different. And it came to basically <laughs> his combative, you know, Devin White, the best linebacker in college football. He's chirping and chirping at practice one day. And Joe's not even the starter at that point. And basically yells out, hey, Devin, if you don't shut the fuck up, I'm going to come over there and beat the fuck out of you. <laughs> like, Whoa, where did that come from? You know, and that got people's attention. And I, you know, talking to the coaches, talking to people in the program, they're like, yeah, I really think 
That's what the defensive guys wanted because they'd never seen that from anybody at yeah. LSU's offense. And there were other scenes like that we have in the book about Joe, basically Joe starting a fight with Jacoby Stevens, Joe get starting a full scale brawl uh, with at, getting into it with Patrick Queen, same practice. And that's the kind of stuff that really made people go, wait a minute, this guy is different now. And then when after the first year where it was 2018, there was some good, not great stuff uh, as he adjusted to the offense. But later in the year, they started to get rolling and they started to do some of the stuff he was more comfortable with. And he got more involved in the run game, which was definitely did some damage. Even in a game they lost in a seven overtime game against Texas A&M, you could see flashes in the they beat uh, uh, undefeated UCF team in the Fiesta Bowl. You saw more flashes. And then Ogeron gets to hire Joe Brady, who he had been enamored with from one one inter, uh, meeting that they had with Joe Brady and Pete Carmichael from the Saints, who'd come to clinic with them earlier that year before the season. And he really, I mean, he was sold. Joe Brady was going to be that guy. And it's crazy looking back, but everything he said was true. Look, Joe Brady was that guy. Joe Burrow became that guy. Um, now, he didn't say Clyde's going to become a first-round pick, but, you know, all the pieces then kind of just fell into place. They knew Jamar Chase was special when I was there that spring. I mean, I was like, really? And they talked about him like like different. And the only the only thing that, you know, jumped out at me more than anything from looking back was when Ogeron was on Jimmy Johnson's staff, and those were ridiculously talented Miami teams. And then when he was helped Pete Carroll build that USC run where they won championships, he talked about what it was like at practice, the iron sharpens iron, but Mm -hmm. having that and the energy at practice. And that's what you saw. I mean, like Jamar Chase, I came away a huge believer in from being around it. Same thing with Joe Burrow, because they are different than almost anybody I've seen um, in college football, in a, in a practice setting or everything like that. It's kind of, I have a buddy who's a, who was a Midwest scout in the NFL and the stories about Michael Thomas from his Ohio state days, um, were different than you'd hear. And that's kind of what it sounded like with the Jamar chase, Joe Burrow stuff. I mean, that's one of the few things I can only equate to. Those guys are just different in how they carry themselves and how that affects college athletes. I mean, it's just incredible that Everything, I mean, and I think that the Joe Brady stuff and how it happened really speaks to how important cross-pollinization is with coaching staffs. I mean, you come in and say, I want to learn this specific thing. It's almost like I'm not equating our jobs to being a football coach, but you know how sometimes making that one extra call makes a story mm. that you're writing? It's, and you make the one extra call to sit down with Joe Brady for something that in your mind is completely unrelated to what eventually happens. And not only does it shape the history of LSU football, it shapes the history of Cincinnati football in, with the Bengals. It shapes an entire first round of an NFL draft solely because you decided that you wanted to have this guy come in and have a conversation about one specific aspect of an offense that you want to implement. I mean, just the domino effects of it all is just absolutely unbelievable. I, I just It's hard to wrap your mind around. Well, look, I mean, ask the Vikings, who's who's been a great rookie for them. Like, that was a two-star guy who yes. showed up at, at LSU. People thought Justin Jefferson, even on the team, thought Justin Jefferson was a walk-on. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't a pretty good player when he got there, but those guys took off when, when Brady showed up. And Brady wasn't like the primary play caller. Steve Ensminger still was. But some of the things that he added to it, and look, what Clyde was able to do and how it fit, like, forget the max protect stuff 
you know, Joe, Bra- Joe Burrow wanted it on him. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to be aggressive. I'm not trusting. Max Protect means we, we I don't have options. It means it's every, everything gets crowded. Let's let somebody else try to go, go cover Clyde. And all those things, like you think about it, Clyde was the three-star guy in Ogeron's first class. He had no, I mean, Leonard Fournette is a god in Louisiana mm-hmm. recruiting. Uh, Geis was a huge recruit. Clyde? I mean, I, there, yeah. even people down there that I trust would say Clyde was an average SEC back. Well, then you watched it last year, and Clyde took off. I mean, watching – I was in Oklahoma for an OU game for Fox, and they played Alabama that day. And I remember my colleague who also works for the Athletics, Stuart Mandel, and I were talking, and he was convinced, I think in part because Najee Harris was a five-star guy, Najee Harris is by far the best running back in the field. And I remember texting him during the game, don't keep shitting on Clyde because, and Clyde embarrassed Alabama that day. Yeah, I mean, it was insane what he was doing. Like that was arguably as impressive a game by a running back as I've seen in the last five years in college. And again, that was a three-star guy who fit really well into the offense and was playing with a ton of confidence and, like, I'm not shocked that there. I, right now, I think the count is like there's been six guys off that offense alone who started NFL games as rookies. And that's pretty unheard of, especially when you think Clyde has really broken out. Obviously, Justin Jefferson has broken out. Burrow has been really impressive. And I'm thinking about it. The guy who might be the most talented of all of them, he's not coming into the draft till 2021. And that's Jamar Chase. Chase so yeah. it's who the other crazy. ones. And then it's. Uh, Lloyd Cushenberry well, starts with Cushenberry the Broncos. Star- yeah, and then um, Sadiq Charles started before getting That's right. hurt for the Redskins, That's right. right? So That's right. you have that. And Damian Lewis, those guys love Damian Lewis at LSU. Now Pete He's Carroll, been good. Yeah, drafts him. Now, they're not surprised about that. I do remember uh, the O-line coach, James Craig, who'd been in the NFL with the Broncos and with the Chargers. He was like, I got to get this guy into the senior bowl. You know, they just love Damian Lewis. And so I'm not surprised that Pete Carroll would would have bought in on him. But I mean, that's a, like I said, that's a pretty deep group considering there's going to be two, I would guess top 10 picks who were starters on that offense, who are going to go into the draft now. And that's chase and Terrace Marshall. So the firepower that they had was pretty insane. I mean, the, the crazy thing is it just feels like how much confidence plays a factor here and how much that skeleton key of Joe Brady kind of unlocking everything and allowing these players to understand that these versions of themselves are possible. It just because Justin Jefferson didn't suddenly become a better athlete and a more gifted player when Joe Brady came, but he gets to understand what he's capable of. And when you see that, and when that just becomes something that you can attain on a daily basis, I'm sure Joe Burrow felt the same way. Even if you have some level of self-esteem and self-respect and pride and confidence in yourself I have to assume that when you see what's possible it changes what your expectations for yourself are and I'm sure that happened with all those guys yeah and it's interesting to look back I thought about this a a minute ago as we were talking where we were talking about the going to see uh Joe Brady part of this and when he's down there I remember Brady said something about like how these guys have bought so into these are NFL concepts you're going to be doing when you get up there and so they were like enamored with it but so we do this thing in, on our for the athletic on the co- on college side of state of the program. And so I had done a Joe Brady story, but also in the state of the program was just about the new offense. And for people, you got to remember, like 16 months ago, you try to tell people, yeah, LSU is going to be really different on offense. They're like, yeah, bull. Mm. 
You know, they're not <laughs> believing it because I heard that about Cam Cameron. I heard that about exactly. You know, exactly. This guy's coming in. Les Miles is going to change it. Wait, here comes Matt Canada. Yeah, that offense stunk. Go through it. I mean, you know, you name the you name the player, you name the quarterback at LSU. It still came back to it's going to be we're going to lean on the run and we're going to have to beat you with defense, and that's that. I've been there, done that. And it's like an NFL so, team that can't find a player at a certain position. Like, for whatever reason, it's just a wasteland for a decade and a half. That's what LSU's offensive coordinator was, no matter who they brought in. Yeah, it felt the same. And so so think about that as a backdrop of, like, like it's almost like they're the only ones who can see the ghost. Where, like, they're in there <laughs> and they're thinking about it as, like, oh, no, wait. We're going to be... We're going to be like that, like the 1980 San Diego Chargers or something. I have said, no, those guys are before their time. But, like, that's what we're going to look like now. We are going to we are going to shock people. So those are the only guys. If you're Justin Jefferson, if you're Jamar Chase, if you're Terrace Marshall, if you're if you're, you know, Burrow, and certainly even think about it, like you know, Thaddeus Moss, Randy Moss's son, he was like a big question mark. Like he didn't do anything yeah. the year before. They were always like, eh, he's banged up. He's you know not all the way bought in, and so, and then he has a great year. So I think. For them to just kind of like plow through all the doubt, plow through all the, yeah, you're still going to get your butts kicked by Alabama or all that and and show up, um, I think was different. And what I realized, like there was a moment because I always thought, you know, I'd seen Ohio State in, in person last year because we, we did an Ohio State game and I'd watched a lot of Clemson and I always thought, you know what, they're they're really good, but I don't know if they, once it comes to playing those teams, those teams are more complete. And um, at the end of the year, so I'm with them the week of the whole week for the SEC title game. They, they just smoked Georgia. And I knew they would beat Oklahoma because I'd seen them and uh, seen Oklahoma in person. They don't match up well like, for what LSU does. But I remember leaving the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in, in Atlanta and thinking, you know, they play Clemson, they play Ohio State, whoever. They're going to they're not losing, not this team, because I was just so struck by an hour before kickoff. The vibe around that team, especially the offense, was so, so loose and so focused <laughs> and so confident. It felt exactly like it did on Wednesday at practice. And I'm, you know, like, I'm not saying I know any, everything about football, but I am like, as a sideline reporter, I'm around teams all the time yeah. before. You know games. what it feels like when a team yeah. absolutely and, is feeling it. I feel I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. And I've never been around a team that felt like that before the game. It was just way different. And I'm like, whoever they play, you know, you better buckle up, Trevor Lawrence. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to like keep up in this scoring race because you know what it came down to is and Brent Venables is as good a defense coordinator as is in college football. At the end of the day, their first round pick defensive back was gonna have to deal with with Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. And he's not gonna he's not gonna like how that goes. And that's what happened. <laughs> you know, it was like they they're up 17-7, then all of a sudden. Jamar Chase just starts going off and then all of a sudden it just starts to snowball and that confidence kicked in because why wouldn't it kick in? Cause they they've done it every other time they did it in Tuscaloosa. So I, I just think it was like, you know, all those things you said, at, you know, at the beginning of the podcast about the sliding doors, like it was like, we're different. You guys can't keep up. And in college football confidence with, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds matters so much because when you get on a roll or the momentum and everything and the belief, it's like a lot different than it is when you're dealing, I think, with like grown men and everything like that. 
I was, I don't, you know, I watched college football as a casual observer. It's the most fun I've had watching college football in a decade was watching that team and watching Joe Burrow. It was a special group and it's a special moment to tap into. And you guys should definitely go read about it. Bruce's book, Flipping the Script, came out this week. Please go check it out. Bruce, thanks for joining us. It's always great to talk to you, man. Thanks so much, Robert. I appreciate it. Nate and I will be back on Sunday night, as we always are, breaking down the week's action. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform of choice. I would really appreciate it. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. That $1 a month promotion is still going. It will end next week. So make sure to grab that while you can. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.